Thank you for listening to the First Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Here you will be able to listen to all of our Sunday morning sermons. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss a sermon. Enjoy today's message. morning, and it's great to share with you all today. I want to do something very important before we start. I want to take just a moment and pray. Let's do that. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to open up your word and to look at stories about Jesus that transforms people's lives. It's my prayer today as we do that very thing, that your spirit come into this place and that he encourage and that he guide us down a path that can make a difference in our life and make a difference in our world and make a difference in those people around us. We just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, every week, the last few weeks, Chris has said, Thy kingdom come. And I'm going to start out by saying this. As sands of the hourglass... Okay, I thought, what a, way to, what a way to hook you in today when we talk about life and death. You know, we think about that hourglass like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz and the Wicked Witch had that hourglass ticking away at what would be the end of her life. And you know, we don't like to talk a lot about that, but there's a time, it says in Ecclesiastes, a time for everything, a time for every season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. You know, life is a big cycle, but we don't like to think about the end of that cycle. Because of all of us, in some ways, death's scary. You think, you know, am I going to be that person that withers away with cancer? Or am I going to go like my dad did with a heart attack? Will I suffer? And we often think about that. And we're, not, we're going to end up today with a very positive thought with all of you about life and death. The Bible tells us, just as people are destined to die once, after that they face the judgment. And, you know, those are tough words. And, you know, lots of times we tell stories about life and death. And, you know, I had a dream the other day. I dreamt I went to heaven and they were telling me, Mark... You've really been a pretty decent guy. But you really haven't been quite good enough to get there. So they gave me a piece of chalk. And they said, go up the stairs to heaven on every step, write every sin that you can remember. And so I took off. I was writing and I went to day one, day two, day three. And I kept hearing a familiar voice. I thought, wonder whose voice I hear. I thought it was Doug Major for a minute. Or maybe uh, Freddie Gum down here. And I kept hearing a clank, 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 and finally this voice is chit-chatting, coming down the stairs, and I look up, and it's Chris Gregg. And I said, Chris, great to see you. Where are you going? He's got a wheelbar, and he goes, I'm going after a little more chalk. <laughs> you see, we often joke about it, but it's a reality of life. Because we know those stories of people who passed way too young. I still remember the day my brother-in-law was hit and killed by a train. Am I running out of gas? 
You're going to move that? Okay. I still remember that vividly, getting a call. My brother-in-law had been hit and killed by a train on his way to work at Bemis. And how tragic that was at 30 years old to leave a wife and two kids. And on the other hand, I think about the same time frame, my brother passed just a few months before my brother passed with cancer. And we were ready for that, but not ready. You see, life and death are all part of what's going on. You know, I wander through cemeteries regularly doing funerals, and I look down at people's gravestones, and I said, I wonder what those people were like. I wonder what kind of lives they had. I wonder what kind of, number one, did they know Jesus? Am I going to meet him in heaven someday? I look at that, and I think, I wonder what their story is. And I want to encourage you. Keep your family stories alive because the average family member's story in two generations disappears. The stories that you know about your grandma and grandpa, great-grandma and grandpa, keep those stories alive by sharing them with your kids and their kids and their kids if you get the chance. Because it's hard, to me, it's, it's devastating to think that people that I love and care about No one will know how special they were in two generations on average. So keep that alive. But let's talk a little bit about the story today. I got things you say, Mark, how do you get ideas for sermons? And I've been doing a little bit of reading and, and the Gospels, and I happened to hear the country song, Live Like You Were Dying. I thought, that'd make a good sermon. So I put it to work. In fact, actually, I shook this sermon down two weeks ago at a little country church out here. I said, you guys get the experimental version. And uh, went back this week and redid some things. And, but I took that idea and I said, you know, how can we live like we are dying? And I thought, that relates to the story of Jesus at the Last Supper in a great way. Jesus fully understood what was going to happen in the next 24 hours that his life would be over. And in spite of this looming tragedy, if we look at Jesus and the Last Supper, we see that he was healthy, he was vibrant, he was engaging with those disciples, and I'm sure he's pouring those last-minute things into their heart. And just like any other time in his life, he gave orders about the Passover. In Matthew's Gospel, in verse chapter 23, verse 17, it says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passovers with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did just as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. That picture that we see of Leonardo da Vinci pops in our mind, doesn't it? The Last Supper, where Jesus and his disciples are all gathered around. And we can look at that picture in our mind and look at the Scriptures And we could draw some things, I think, from them that will encourage us and help us as we live for the Lord. First thing, Jesus 
did in face of certain death, he illustrated the importance of community. Jesus had no family with him to celebrate. Throughout his life, up until he went away with his disciples, some three years older, Joseph and Mary and those people and his immediate family all gathered every year to celebrate the Passover. But now only his 12 closest companions and followers with him. I'm sure the head of the house where they observed the Last Supper, the Passover feast, they were part of that too where they gathered to remember being released from slavery in Egypt and how on the last of the plagues, the doorposts were painted with blood and the death angel passed over and spared them. These men, all of them like Jesus, from their earliest days, had celebrated this feast, this feast of remembrance about what God did. I'm sure they're like us. If you go back in your mind, you can go back to Christmases or Easter's or Thanksgivings, and you can remember and tell stories about what your family did. And I'm sure they talked about times when maybe a family member came a long distance to celebrate with them or something crazy happened. Kind of like, you know, some of you told the story, yes, mom burnt the turkey on Thanksgiving. I'm sure they had those little things that happened in their life over the years during this feast. And these 12 men in Jesus get together for this moment. Bound together by a common faith and a common God. Bound together by their exclusiveness as God's chosen people. And that purpose, that gave them a purpose and a distinction above all other people on the face of the earth. No doubt, Jesus being the master teacher took an opportunity to build on what he had taught them in the three years ahead. But as they gathered for the last time, the idea of community and common faith were first. Because he knew that after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, community would provide a foundation on which to build a church that would change the world. In spite of the hostile environment that church was born in, community was so essential for it to go on. If we look in Acts chapter 4, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. From the community that Jesus built with these 12 to a community of the church, we see that essential element here today. And it's essential for your life and my life too. You say, how do we do we do community? You're doing it right now. When you're together, you're spending time with each other. Hebrews 10.25 tells us, Don't give up the meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The other day, something came across my 
Facebook page and it said, Watching online church is like watching a fireplace on TV. Anybody been by anybody's house where they put the TV on and they put the fireplace? You hear the crackle, you see the picture, but you don't feel the warmth. Community provides warmth for you and I. That's like today. I've, I'm charged up because I got to see so many people this morning. You got to visit with them and, and, and encourage them. And being part of worship is essential. Second thing, we provide community through serving together. Ownership. When you see people get together like the ladies that decorated up here, or a group that's in a small group and they build those bonds of friendship. Or I can think of one, how three or four new people two years ago showed up to help put the Christmas decorations up. And that sense of serving together brought those people together and bonded them. Just ask anybody that's been on a mission trip, whether overseas or here in the U.S., you spend a week working alongside someone in a mission field or on a mission project. Man, you get this closeness. Of community. Community is togetherness. You also want to talk about community being part of fellowship too. Probably one of the greatest witnesses we have both inside and outside the church is hospitality. Paul tells us in Romans twelve thirteen, practice hospitality. You know, it's one of the strongest witnesses you have to your neighbors. In our neighborhood, we often talk about what we do for and with our neighbors. My wife bakes wonderful pies. They have meringue and they stand about that tall. And she tells me, you shouldn't eat a whole pie over three or four days. So what we do is when we're done, we save two extra pieces And we go knock on a neighbor's door and we say, hey, we want to give you some pie. And they're happy. Just showing a little hospitality and it builds a bridge there between ourselves. One of the fun things I do in the summertime, I hate to come home from vacation after being gone for a week and see 2.82 acres of grass that needs cut. So if I know a neighbor's on vacation, I'll start to mow her up, go down and cut your grass the day before they come home. You know, hospitality goes a long way, and you can figure out your own ways to do it, because what that does is that builds a bridge between you and someone else that may give you an opportunity to share your faith and God's love with. And that's what the early church did. said they had all things in common. They shared with one another, and they shared both inside and outside the church. So when we look today, we see that community was an essential part of that Last Supper. Jesus also modeled commitment. There was no question in Jesus' mind he was going to die in 24 hours. No question. He knew that. He would later pray in the garden, asking God's will to be done. Have this cup passed away. 
But he knew his fate was set. To die on a cross, be the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And he took a common part of the Passover feast and turned it to focus on himself and the mission. Verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew what death meant. You know, he knew it wasn't going to be a comfortable passing like it is in today's world where you go to hospice care and they give you drugs to relax you and make that passing easy. Because as he traveled about Israel, especially Jerusalem, he passed the places of execution regularly. It wasn't like being executed at the federal prison over here where it's done behind big walls a half mile off the highway in the middle of the complex? No. When someone was crucified, they did it right out on main drag, the main road coming in. And Jesus saw these men who had suffered that way, sometimes for days before they died. And he knew what was going to happen. He knew also, too, on a positive note, that the drains of the temple would no longer need to flow with the bloods of animals because his blood that was shed on the cross would be sufficient for all. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, sins for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Wow. Jesus was committed in spite of the fact that he knew he was going to be betrayed. In spite of the fact that he knew Peter would deny him three times. In spite of the fact that he was going to die the most horrendous death on the face of the earth. He was committed to doing what God called him to do. How about you and I? Let's talk about our commitment. Vince Lombardi, famous Packer coach, said there's only one way to succeed in anything, and that's to give everything. I do and I demand that my players do. Any man's finest hour when he's worked his heart out in a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle, victorious. Wow. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Here's something interesting about that. You can't be a boxer thinking you're never going to get hit. You can't be a boxer out thinking, I'm never going to get hit. You have to learn how to take the punches. If you're a runner, not every track is going to be flat. 
There's going to be hills, and there's going to be hills that go up, and there's going to be hills that go down. In order to go 15 rounds in life, or to run a marathon, you've got to take the punches. You've got to conquer the hills. We need to be committed. How committed are you? My son-in-law is helping a friend who's going to run the Boston Marathon. Yesterday morning, I'm sure they took off and ran 30 miles. And they've been doing it. This guy hasn't missed a day running. He was the manager at Riddell Bank in Terre Haute. Hasn't missed a day running at least 10 miles in the last year and a half. But he just keeps conditioning himself. And we were talking about they run north toward Clinton. He says, you know, that is one big hill up 63. But he's conditioning himself to do that. And that's just like you and I. As we go through life, everything's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But we gain strength when we make it through those tough times to handle life in a better way. James says, tells us to hang in this way. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord's promised those who love him. Wow. A crown of life. So my encouragement to you today is it's going to be tough to go to work. And maybe stand up for your faith. It's going to be tough in the school system when somebody says, you really believe that? It's going to be tough when a neighbor ridicules you. But I would tell you, stay in there because your commitment is so essential to the life of the church, to the life of the faith, and to you personally. The last thing Jesus modeled for us, he modeled being a servant. In John's gospel, he records this story. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The problem we have approaching this story is is we don't know what, understand the significance of this action in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day in Israel or Palestine, there were no paved roads. And so when you came to someone's house, the first thing of hospitality they would do, you know, we come in, somebody says, says, you want a Coke? They would wash their feet. Taking off the the caked on dirt and dust that had accumulated in their walk. And every house in its entryway had a large pot of water just to do that task. It wasn't just a job that anyone did, it was the job of a slave or a servant the lowest person on the totem pole. It wouldn't be the guest, the master of the house saying, hello, it's good to see you. Let me wash your feet before you come in to eat. No, he would call for a servant to come and bow down and wash the feet of those who came to visit. 
on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus got up, took off his outer robe, pulled up and tied his inner robe and poured a basin of water and went down at the feet of his disciples and washed their feet. And they were humbled by that because they knew it was totally out of context. It'd be like you being at work one day and the boss calling everybody in from the factory. Said, everybody sit down. He pulled out a box with a rag and a brush. He says, I'm going to polish your shoes. And say, you're the boss. What are you doing doing this? We'd be taken back by that, wouldn't we? But Jesus modeled being a servant. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. What an example for us to follow. Service breaks down a lot of barriers. Just this last week, I'm the Department of Natural Resources Chaplain for eight counties. It was our annual qualification day at the range. So we had 13 officers show up with 9 millimeters and ARs and shotguns to practice and to qualify. And there's an officer I just haven't been able to build a bridge with. Haven't been able to get on the same wavelength with. When we finished up, the rules of the range is clean up your brass. So they'd fired 1,500 to 2,000 rounds of ammunition that morning. And I'm out there on my hands and knees and I'm picking up 9 millimeters at 223s. And this officer that I'm having trouble with, getting close to, leans over to me and says, that's really nice of you to get down and help us do this. And I think I've built a bridge that I can build a relationship with. And if time comes, maybe be a helper or an encourager in this person's life. You see, when we serve other people, it gives us an opportunity to minister to them and to help them and build that bridge to show them what Christ is doing in our lives. So many people make today possible in our church because they serve, because they do those little things that make it happen on Sunday morning. Now, let's go back to the original question. Live like you only have one day to live. How would you honor God in your last days? Jesus had but a few hours. Build community. Invest in the community around. Invest in your family. And I probably learned this best. My secretary at Union Church for years, her husband made a trip to the doctor. She came in the next morning and she says, Richard has, has stage 3 plus lung cancer. Doctors give him a maximum of 18 months to live. And she says, uh, we're going on a cruise next month. And he made a choice. He says, with chemotherapy, I could live 18 months. And he says, before I start taking that nasty stuff, we're going to do things. 
We're going to build community in our family. We're going to build memories for our grandkids. And they went to Cubs games all the time. I hate to say they were Cubs fans, okay? But they went to Cubs games, and they took a cruise, and they did this, and they went to see relatives and friends. And you know what? He took chemotherapy a year later and lived 18 months. But he did so many things to invest in community. Somebody says, Mark, what would you do? You're all invited to a party. You say, what? That would probably be the most fun thing I could do if I had a year to live. Was to throw a big party. Y'all come and eat. We'll play bluegrass music. We'll do all kinds of things. And show how important community is to me. You know, it's how we look at life that makes a difference in how we live. We talk about that. How important is community? I just uh, filled out a questionnaire last month. I went to the National Wild Turkey Federation's National Convention in Nashville for a couple days. And saw all the new stuff. Went to a few seminars. Just enjoyed my day. But you know what the highlight of my day was? I have a friend named David Hale, who was a biggie in his day in the outdoor business. And David has had Parkinson's for 10 years. And I'm going down an aisle, and I look, and here comes a man who is in advanced stages of Parkinson in a wheelchair being pushed in with his best camo sport coat on and a white shirt. And we stood and talked about five minutes. He saw how important it was to get out and be part of community. He made my day. I've been in his Sunday school class in his church, you know, so we, we've done some things with them. But yet, that was a highlight of my trip to get to see him, maybe for the last time. He invested in community. Another thing you need to do is share your faith. That person that you've been wanting to talk to, pray for God to open an opportunity for you before it gets too late for you or them. Serve. Invest in others. Now, I want to close with a four-letter word that changes the whole perspective of death. That changes the whole perspective of everything we've talked about today. And that four-letter word is hope. The word hope totally transforms how you and I look at life and look at death. Peter puts it this way, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his abundant mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Hope changes the perspective. Jesus knew that wasn't going to be the end. And Jesus encourages us that life and death is not the end. There's life, death, and life. And probably one of the best stories that comes in my life comes from doing funerals. I was in Rockville, Indiana, and lots of times 
when you do a funeral after the funeral, people break up and go around the cemetery to visit family graves and tell their stories that we talked about earlier. Well, I'm talking with a lady, and she begins to tell me about her mother's, her dad. I had done her mother's funeral well in her 90s, and her uncle was buried here. And she told me, says, this is my brother's grave, but his body isn't here. And I looked down, and it said, Lieutenant Homer Arnold Jr. And I became intrigued with her story. Her brother was, I actually did a 15-minute TV program on him at one time, a, a little short, and went to Rockville to research. And a lady asked me what I was doing, research in the library, I said about Homer Arnold. So he was the handsomest guy in my class. He was the smartest guy in my class. He was, in fact, a student at IU School of Medicine. And he dropped out and joined the Army Air Force during World War II. Became a navigator on a B-24 Liberator. I believe on his very first mission, his plane was shot down and he was killed. Mom and Dad, this was their only son, Junior. In fact, before he left to be deployed, they got on a train in Rockville, Indiana, rode the train all the way to New York City, and spent a week with him before he left to go overseas and came back home. They lived their life after he passed with the dream that Junior was going to, they were going to get Junior's body brought back from Belgium and interred in Rockville Cemetery. And they finally realized that isn't going to happen. And so they went out there and they put this stone up. And that was their stone of hope. Because they knew, even though they would never see him again in this world, they had the hope of seeing him in heaven. And that gives us a whole different perspective about living and dying. And Jesus gives us that pathway. So I want to encourage you. Be like Jesus. Live like there's no tomorrow. That any day you could go to heaven that any day you can meet the Savior. Let's pray together. Father, it's my prayer today that as we get together to be part of community, we get together to pray, to worship, to sing, to hear your word, that you help us live not as defeated people, but as people of hope who trust you and trust your word. Maybe someone here today needs prayers for encouragement. Maybe someone needs an eternal hope. We're just going to let them make decisions during decision time today. We're going to let your spirit speak to their hearts and let him encourage us to follow you. We have a hope that goes beyond this world. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen.